If you are ready to jump in God's word, let me hear an amen. Amen. You can go ahead and find yourself in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to be in the Old Testament looking at a, a passage there, chapter 18. And um, as you are searching through, it's getting kind of cold. And so I was reflecting and thinking how winter is just around the corner. Last year, at the Feria household, this past winter, our combi boiler broke down. It's a tankless water heater system that heats my house and heats my hot water, and that thing decided it was uh, not interested. It went on strike. Just said, I'm done. And uh, experiencing a New England winter without heat or hot water is a lot of fun. Tongue in cheek, it's not fun at all. <laughs> and so we weathered a couple of nights. We, you know, decided let's just put some more clothes on and, you know, even let's bundle up Micah with one onesie and two onesies and uh, put a couple of thicker blankets on the beds. And, you know what, let's go grab some space heaters. And we're trying to figure it out. We called the plumber and working through some things and trying to figure it out. There's troubleshooting. And so, you know, that went through a couple of days, and then we decided, well, it's a little colder now, so we all piled on into one bed. Micah, come on over and that, and we all try to sleep all throughout the night with the kicking toddler and getting punched and jabbed and all that wonderful stuff. Um, so we did that for a little while as we cranked up the space heaters. But when the pipe started freezing, we're like, all right, we got to get out of here. You know, there was one morning I woke up to get ready to go to church and I go over to my shower and I turn the handle or I attempt to turn the handle and that thing won't even move. There's no water coming out of this thing. And if ever water came out, it would have been ice cold. So when that all happened, we had to get out of there. Long story short, the fiasco ended with a pipe bursting in my son's bedroom and completely drenching the heating system directly below in the basement. That wasn't fun. If you don't already know, let me educate you. Uh, water and wooden hardwood floors plus electrical components, they don't mix well. So it didn't end up too good in that whole scenario. We went through two plumbers and ended up needing to replace the whole heating system. And so um, that was that, and I'm not going to talk about my floors. If you go to my son's room, you'll find that there's a big area rug right on top of it, and that's, that's that. And so that combi water boiler and heating system, it's only as good if it's fulfilling its purpose and its intended reason for existing. You know, it's no good if it is broken. It is worthless. If it is not heating my house or heating my hot water, that thing is utterly useless. That's the story of my water system and my heating system. But let's turn that around and think about this. Have you ever felt useless? Have you ever felt, maybe that's not the word, maybe have you ever felt broken? 
Like you've ever felt like in one way or another, there's something that's just not right, something that just does not get right, something that just continues to be broken and marred and completely ruined, something within you that you just can't get past and you can't work it. You're aware of it and you don't like it. You don't want it, but you just can't shake it. Anybody here willing to admit? Maybe, you know, this brokenness and this uselessness and something within you that has not quite been right has cost you something. Maybe it's cost you in the realm of your confidence. Maybe something broken within your life has cost you in the realm of your relationships or in your career possibly. Maybe it's cost you something within your family. Maybe it's cost you something within your faith. Something that is quite broken. You look at it. It's not accomplishing its purpose. It's not bringing about a good result. It's not doing something that's worthwhile. And so you feel like there's something broken, something useless. Have you ever heard Satan's discouraging distortions and accusations that you are too far gone and you are just plain spoiled? I don't know, maybe I'm in the wrong place this morning, but I have certainly felt that way in times past. I've certainly felt like there's just something about me that's a little too broken, and I can't believe I'm back to this again. I've done this. I said I wouldn't. I wanted to shake that. I don't want to experience this lack or this dearth or this pain and sorrow that has somehow resulted from something not being quite right. I felt that way before. Well, the good news is, I know I'm not alone, whether you guys care to admit it with me this morning or not. God certainly has seen how we have this propensity towards feeling broken. We have this ability to get broken, this ability to make a mess out of our circumstances and lives. And so with that incredible grace of his that he shows time and time again, he records a story for us here in Jeremiah chapter 18. And in this story, he provides us an object lesson. It's a lesson in which he validates and proves again and again all throughout this book called the scriptures. Thankfully, he had something to say to us when we do feel, in fact, broken, worthless, useless, like we feel like we've been spoiled. And so I want you to look here at Jeremiah chapter 18. As we look at this passage and others, let's consider the question that we, the broken, may sometimes ponder within our lives. And that is, can God truly restore my life? Can God truly restore my life? Jeremiah 18, verse 1. This is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord was, verse 2, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. We've established God is a forever speaking God. Amen? a forever speaking God. And so let, go down, I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. 
And Lord, I just pray that you would speak through this broken vessel and that your Holy Spirit would encamp himself around each ear, each heart, each mind. Let us hear the word of the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He, I feel like he had just a tough time, man. This is a guy who was put on an assignment. His purpose was to go and bring God's oracles and share God's word to a nation that was just totally broken. A nation that time and time again just kept doing the wrong things. They could not shake the right thing. They, they just kept, uh, couldn't shake the wrong thing and kept doing the, you know, that wrong thing and not the right thing. And so, so many times Jeremiah had to show up on the scene and tell them some terrible news. Hey, because of X, Y, Z, because of your heart, because of your actions, because of your stubbornness, this is what the Lord God says is lying in wake for you. This is what God has to pour out to you because you are not fulfilling his promises and adhering to his word. And so he sends him down to the potter's house, and he wants him to learn a certain lesson. Jeremiah starts observing this man hard at work as he's doing his profession, one of which was very common in the ancient Near East. It's believed that um, even in the days of Egypt and, and prior, that uh, pottery was a very common uh, form of, of expression in, in an industry that people would shape things and make vessels for different uses and purposes, and so... If you are look at the Egyptian monuments, for instance, you'll know that the Hebrews were not just involved at making their, the, the, the clay bricks to, to build things, but they were also very busy at building t pottery type of things. Psalms 81.6 says that the Israelites were used in pottery as well as bricklaying. I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. Other expositors and, and Bible commentators say that the interpreter and interpreters that the, the word in Hebrew, the wood, uh, I can't say it properly because I don't speak Hebrew, but uh, D-U-W-D, the meaning was basket. And it refers to the baskets that the brick makers used to carry their clay. It's a very old profession. It was there. The, the, the people of God were used to this type of thing. So why wouldn't God utilize this object lesson to teach something to his people? As Jeremiah goes to the potter's house, he looks on and he sees the potter shaping a pot, making something that he intended. And as he's doing so, that clay becomes marred. The word for marred might be translated in your Bible spoiled. It might be translated broken. It might be translated ruined. It might be translated useless. It's a word that can be translated in a bunch of different ways. And much like my soaked, good-for-nothing combi water system boiler, it was marred. It was flawed. That clay became spoiled in the hands of that potter. It was no longer useful. It was no longer good. It was no longer able to fulfill its original intended purpose. It was broken. And one thing that I want us to understand is that as he is looking at the potter going about his business, this very real idea jumps out at that moment that 
There is a marred clay. There is a broken clay. There is something broken here. And if we look at the Bible and all of its teachings, if we are able to just, you know, consolidate and see the unity of it, that we'll realize from the very first book in Genesis all the way down to Revelation that there is a brokenness within humanity. That this brokenness is called sin. And that this sin is something that spoils and ruins all of us. Ecclesiastes 7 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Psalms 14 says that they have all turned aside together and they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul goes on in his you know, incredibly encouraging epistle to the Romans. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged uh, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. See, church, what becomes very apparent to the nation of Israel through the words of Jeremiah, what becomes very apparent to us as we read the book, the books of the Bible, and we realize the words of God and the message and the story that's within there, it becomes very apparent that before God's eyes, all of us are broken. Before God's eyes, there is none who is not broken. So if you felt like, ah, I'm not really uh, identifying, Pastor Brian, you know, you might feel broken and worthless and useless at times, and that might have happened, but you know what, not so much me. Well, let me just tell you, newsflash, we are all broken. And we might not be able to say that out loud because we don't like it. This, this isn't a, a theoretical thing that I'm saying that you just have to take me at my word. There is something innately every single day. Just, just do, do yourself a test. Do you think thoughts every single day that are just not good? Has there ever popped a thought in your mind that you know, like, man, I really shouldn't have thought that? Come on now. Let's just be honest in church. We make decisions that lead to regret, don't we? Or are all of your decisions like solid and golden and amazing and the angels are singing and everyone's giving you praises? Your boss is just opening the door before you and your family is just, you know, pampering you when you get home. And, and you know, no, we make decisions that we regret. We know this innately. We, we go on and act in ways that we have already tested, tried, and, and established that brings pain into our lives and pain into the lives of others in our circle of influence. We are broken. We're broken. It's the reality. There is none good. But God, when Jeremiah shows up at the potter's house, the very first thing that comes out is like, look, there is something that went wrong as this potter is making this potter. We don't know. It doesn't tell us what it is. How is this clay marred? Could there have been some inclusions within it that just made it, you know, uh, a bad consistency? Could it have been that it was just too top-heavy for the shape in which he was making? We don't know. And it started just the weight of it sagging down. Could it have been that this was just too brittle of a clay and too, too stiff of a clay and it was not pliable in the hands of the potter? We don't know. He doesn't say, but all we do know is that when the potter is trying to make this pottery, it's marred. It's not useful for what it was necessary, for what it was intended to be. And so we are all 
broken. The nation was broken. And Jeremiah was getting tired of speaking the same thing again and again to the people of Israel. But thankfully, can you say thankfully? Thankfully, when we look at the story, God is, we realize that God is not a discarder, but God is a recycler. Thank the Lord that he is not a discarder, but he is a recycler. See, in our broken state, there is nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. However, that does not keep us from trying, doesn't it? It doesn't keep us from trying. I know I found myself in many times trying to just occupy my time, just trying to get better. I'm going to read enough books and I'm going to get better. I'm going to learn from the right people. I'm going to pick the right mentors and I'm going to get better. I'm going to, you know, spend some time honing this skill and this ability and I'm going to get better. I'm going to fix that which is broken within me. I'm going to resist enough and, and plenty and often and I will get better and it's going to be good. See, we try in a whole bunch of different ways. We try doing better. We try, you know, more education. We try climbing the corporate ladder. We try, you know, a whole bunch of things. Let me just try this next relationship. Let me just try, you know, what to, to, to get a bigger home. Maybe that, that's going to make it better. Let me just add more things into my life. Let me just make better, you know, investment choices. And let me increase my portfolio. Let me do this or that. Let me change my scenery. Yeah, it's my scenery. I got to get out from this area. And I got to get away from the people that I'm with. And I got to just change change things up and it's going to get better. I'm going to escape this feeling of brokenness and this thing that is not right within me. But you know what? If we do that, when we do that, when I've done that, I've realized I'm just in constant flux of the circumstances in my life. I'm just moving from one thing to the next thing, and yet the real thing and the more important thing and the underlying thing is still left there broken and unchanged. And as we add all these things and try to do all this stuff, we spin our wheels in vain. Yet God, because of his great love, because of his great compassion and mercy, he looks at all of this stuff. He, he sees what should lie at the bottom of a barrel, what should be discarded and thrown away. He looks at it with grace and mercy, and God does not discard the broken. He says, instead, let me reshape it. It says that Jeremiah, as he's watching the potter, it becomes marred in his hand, and then the potter picks it up and throws it away. No. He picks it up and starts to reshape it. He starts to take that very same lump of clay, that very same broken, marred, top-heavy, uh, completely not going in the direction that it needed to go, thing that is not fulfilling its purpose. He takes that and he allows it to experience another chance. Can someone say amen? God reforms the broken. He reforms the broken. He recycles the clay and he shapes it as he intends it, as he sees fit. And you know what? We can read this passage. Jeremiah is just a fly on the wall. He's observing. God is going to speak to him. God is giving him an object lesson. And we see that and say, wow, that's, that's really easy to see and observe within the realm of art and pottery. And, and wow, that was great. Good job. But yeah, does that really play out in real life? You know, does that truly uh, end up being the case when the rubber meets the road and the messiness of life? 
Well, let me just tell you, church, God is a recycler, and that's what he shows again and again. That's what he did for Jonah. That's what he did for Peter. That's what he did for the woman with the issue of blood. That's what he did for the woman caught in the act of adultery. In fact, let's just jump over there to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, Jesus, who is the Son of God, who only does that which the Father has done and what the Father has told him to do, Jesus encounters a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Yeah, by the way, he also commanded you to stone the man as well. But y'all forgot that. Okay, so what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. See, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to catch him in a way where they could make him out to lose some of his reputation. He, they wanted to uh, put before him a, a very difficult question where whether he answered one way or the other, it does not matter. He is losing in the answer. They were aware that he was a friend of the broken. They were aware that he often hung out with sinners, tax collectors, people that were of disreputable uh, backgrounds and all that other stuff. And so they wanted to catch him. What if we can catch Jesus with one such sinner, one such person of ill repute? What if we can catch such a person in the middle of an act that deserves capital punishment? Because within the Jewish law, there was many laws, but there was a few that were kind of highly exalted. And these were elevated to a point where if you cross that line, you're not just going to get a slap on the wrist and have to pay some restitution. You are going to put your life on the line and pay with your life. And adultery was definitely one of them. Idolatry is another. Murder was another. But idolatry... I'm sorry, adultery was one that they said right here. We got one. And I find it very convenient that these guys happen to just have had the very perfect of victims that they could have just propped up before Jesus. You know, it's interesting because, like I said, they brought this woman. She should be stoned, Jesus. What are you going to do? And they don't bring a man. It's very interesting. I've been through health class in school, and I've learned a couple of things, and I know that for you to be able to commit an act of adultery, you need to have another person involved. And yet, in this case, it's just the woman. It's very convenient that these guys bring up just the lady. Could it be that they knew the person that had committed adultery with her? Could it be that they were actually trying to, you know, cover up the indiscretion of this other, the man who was involved in the problem? Could the man have been somebody that was part of their own group. And it's also kind of very weird and strange that these guys are bringing such a charge against this woman, knowing that the law required for such an accusation to be established by two or three witnesses. Which makes it a little strange in my mind to think that could these guys have been kind of like laying in wait? Like, um, did you witness this thing? You said she got caught, right? Like, were you guys peeping toms and watching this thing happen and go down? Because now you guys are coming to bring that accusation before Jesus of this woman. It's a very strange circumstance. 
But here's the deal. Jesus, if you respond that this woman should be condemned, then you know what? All the people that love you and praise you and are following after you because of your mercy and your love, you're going to suffer in your reputation with such people because you're condemning the woman. And oh, by the way, if you don't condemn her, Jesus, then obviously we win. Why? Because you cannot be the, the so-called Messiah that you claim to be. You cannot be the very perfect son of God, teacher of the law, teacher, rabbi, master that you have gotten a reputation for if you will not call a spade a spade. And you won't convict sin. So we win. At least that's what they felt. And so these guys ask him, pester him. And Jesus quietly, verse 6, Jesus bends down. And he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, if you drop down, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. What masterful words. What masterful words. I'm not even going to answer your question, but let me, let me set the record straight. See, this woman was feeling completely lost and broken. This is a woman who was spoiled. A woman who probably at that moment in her life felt useless. I don't know how she showed up before Jesus. Did they, you know, yank her from that very bed that she was with uh, at and then bring her, you know, all uncomposed, unput together before Jesus? Was she publicly being shamed in that moment? Did she have clothes? Did she not? We don't know, but yet all of a sudden, this woman who feels like she's at the bottom of the barrel, who she feels worthless and useless, useless feels broken, full of shame, full of embarrassment and guilt, that woman has her shame put out before the whole community. She knew what the law taught, and she knew what was her fate. She, she could have, you know, imagined and perceived everything that was about to happen as she looked around and saw men and women picking up stones. She knew that she was going to be stoned to death. Is she crying? Is she, you know, in tears? I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but one thing I can imagine, she is probably distraught. And she's feeling like she is worthless. And in her brokenness, in the moment of her great need, the Son of God, much like God the Father, did not discard this woman. Amen. He did not throw her away and let her be consumed. He did not let those who had accusations towards her have their way. Jesus recycled and he restored this woman. As Jesus got back down, he continued scribbling in the dirt and drawing something in that sand. I don't know what it is. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But one thing we know, one by one, the accusers, starting from the oldest to the youngest, started dropping their stones and going away to the very point where Jesus, verse 10, stood up and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Man, I get goosebumps. It's so awesome. Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Lord, a word of humility and submission. No one, Lord. 
Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus didn't give this woman a lecture. He did not sit her down and set her straight. He did not tell her, you have to do penance now for X amount of times and years, and you're going to do this and that, and you know what? You need to start earning your way back into my good graces. Jesus, in that moment, takes someone that is in the dumps and in the dirt and in the muck and the mire, and he recycles her and repurposes her for his good purpose. Amen? In that moment, Jesus encouraged that woman. He showed her incredible grace. He gave her another chance, and he showed her that she had a new start. God is not a discarder. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not a discarder. That is why God sends a fish to reroute Jonah. That is why Jesus hosted a post-resurrection breakfast on the Sea of Tiberias for Peter. That is what he longs to do for you and for me. Jesus longs to fix us. He longs to set us right and restore us to good purpose and use. He has a plan for us. Jesus is in the restoration business. I love our Bible studies and our, you know, our, our small groups we're doing right now. Going into the word is good and, and, and diving deep how it applies into our hearts and our lives is amazing. But let me just tell you, one of the things that I absolutely adore about our time together is hearing the testimonies. Because I walk away from the testimonies in every session that we have. I'm praising God for his goodness and faithfulness because I see a God that just restores lives. You know, I was super encouraged listening to, to your story, Virginia, as you're talking about how God saved you time and time again, how he delivered you from pain and sickness and disease. But one of the incredible testimonies she shared in our Bible studies is how God took her from a woman in the grips and the bondage of alcohol and God set her free. And it's been years, decades since she's ever touched a drink or had a drink to drop, like she likes to say. I just love hearing that. Hearing, you know, sitting there talking to Sam and how, you know, he had done this and that and experienced this and that in his brokenness, trying to fill every void within his life with this substance and that substance. And as he sat there in his house one day listening to a telev television uh, evangelist, he says, you've tried everything in your life. Why not try Jesus Christ? In that moment, he decided, I'm no longer going to smoke this marijuana. I'm no longer going to be high all the time. And I'm going to let this thing go. And he became changed and transformed. I love seeing God change lives and restore hearts and put us on new purposes. Can somebody say amen? I don't know. Some of you guys have, have shared stories and you've got to be reminded of what God has done because he changes marriages. He changes family dynamics. He renews lives and, and changes our health. He gives us a new outlook on life and a new lease on life if we just experience him and cry out to him. Amen. God is in the business of not throwing people away, but recycling those who have been broken by society, broken by the clutches of sin. He is the ultimate fixer-upper, and he wants to fix us. Amen? That is because God has a purpose for every single life. Verse 4, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. See, God is so into restoring broken lives because he has a purpose for each life. He has a plan for every single life. I love reading in the Psalms how he writes down every one of our days, 
how he's intended us for good works, like Paul says, how we are his masterpiece, his workmanship that he has made. I love reading this idea and this theme within the Bible because God shows us that he has a plan and a purpose for us. He wants to do something within our lives. Much like the potter has a purpose for the clay, through God's providence, he's shaping us into, you know, what he deems most fitting for us, what is most appropriate and necessary, what he exactly wants to establish and fulfill within this time and this season. Sometimes I, I listen to parents say, man, I'm just so, uh, you know, I don't know how, you know, my day when I was growing up, things were not this bad, and now things are crazy. Or those who don't have kids, they say, I, I don't know about bringing kids into this world because this world is just chaotic, and there's so much, you know, immorality and this and that and whatever. Guys, don't you know that God, who in the fullness of time chose to send his son to be born of a virgin, Galatians 4.4, 4, he knows exactly the time and the season and the purpose. He sees the need, he sees the sorrows, he sees the brokenness, and he said, I'm gonna shape you to be exactly the right peg to fit this hole for this time and this season, this nation, this country, this family, this community, this school that you're gonna be in. He is the one that is shaping us exactly the way that he sees fit because he has a plan. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to look at our kids and say, woe is me. What are, what are they going to do? i got to keep them in a bubble, and I'm not going to be able to send them off to do this and that. Yes, we need to do everything within your power. You need to teach them and train them up in the right way. But you know what? you got to trust that God has a plan and a purpose. And if you just partner with his plan and then you just do your part to, to instill, to teach the ways that they should go so that they will not depart from it when they're older. You don't have to be afraid and saying, i got to keep them close, and i got to keep them sheltered, and I can't let them experience this world. Why? Because God is good and he knows what he's doing. I choose to live by faith and not by sight. What I see around me saying that, God, you can have my kids. You can have my family. You can have our church. You can change our circumstances. You can lead us in your ways because you have a purpose for us in this day. Amen. You have a purpose for us in this day. Each life is successful as its own particular purpose is fulfilled. See, we, we, we can't just, you know, become like pottery if we can just take the analogy and the metaphor. We can't just say, well, I'm a plain old jug. I'm just a plain old jug. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm used for just plain old things like pouring water and, and watering the plants or, or, you know, serving water to those at the table. I'm not an incredibly beautiful vase and I don't have all this ornate, intricate details and abilities and skill sets. I'm just a plain old jug. See, a jug does not have to feel inferior compared to the vase. Why? Because it has to just be accountable to what it's made to fulfill and accomplish. It just needs to be uh, measured to the degree in which the potter intended and what God wanted us to accomplish and fulfill. A life is no failure because it is lowly or put to lowly uses. It is only validated as it attains and reaches and fulfills that which God had ordained and designed it to be. That is the only measure, the only criteria, the only evaluation. If you are looking around, comparing yourself to your neighbor, your colleague, your coworker, this person on TikTok and that person on Instagram. You know what? You need to stop that and just say, Lord, what have you designed me and purposed me to be? I'm going to step into that and I'm going to own that. I'm going to find my voice. I'm going to establish myself. I'm going to let go of the imitation game and I'm going to choose you 
and choose your plan and your purpose in my life. God, be glorified through what you've called me to be. See, you can be a very subclass someone else, but you can be the very best person that you alone can be. Amen? So what is it that God has called you to? Ask him, seek him, search him, find out what his will and his ways are for you. It is the most important thing to know that God's first work in us, though, is to restore us to him. His very first purpose for every one of our lives, all right? We have this common denominator that we can all say, all right, I'll compare myself to that. Have I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior because I am a broken vessel in need of the master's touch? I need him to step into my life and redeem me, recycle me in my brokenness and set me in relationship with the Father. All of us have that first and foremost purpose. And so it is his work to do that first in us, to form us, our soul, to make us right. His first concern for us is not what we do, but who we are and whose we are. Amen? Are you his child? Are you clay within his hands? Are you his workmanship? Have you come into relationship with God the Father? That is first and foremost what your purpose is to be. A son of God, a daughter of God, a child of the most high God, adopted into his family. That is your first purpose. Then you can figure out what he wants you to do. First, just step into who you, he wants you to be. Amen. When my, my little girl was coming this past June, chaotic at our house, right? My wife's about to pop. We're getting ready. And uh, Micah's excited to meet his sister. And uh, there's a lot of commentary and conversation about um, how the baby is coming and life is going to be different and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the week of the, the baby's uh, arrival, it was a, a C-section that was planned, arrives and, and we have to get ready to go to the hospital and all that other stuff. I just want to say in that moment, I was very touched and blessed by so many of you guys with a lot of uh, care and compassion towards our family. Nelia is not, yeah, right there, here we go. You're right here, I was looking up, I saw Corey earlier. I was so grateful for the care package you gave to my boy because when all the attention was on his sister that was to arrive, you know what, not a lot of people were saying hello to him or checking in on him and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we were, of course, but, you know, he, he noticed something's going on. And so, you know, in that care package that you gave us, there was one toy in there that we got to play with and have a lot of fun. That was a Play-Doh hamburger set. And uh, it had little cutouts and all these different things. And um, we started making the lettuce and the hamburger. And there's only three colors, so we had some really funky-looking uh, hamburgers there, you know, um, blue burgers and, and red buns and all that kind of stuff. But um, we had a great time playing with those cutouts. But we only played with that one night. We had a lot of fun that afternoon, and then the next morning we went to play with it, and it was all brittle and hard. We forgot to put the Play-Doh away. We didn't put it back in its box because uh, he, he didn't want me to unform it. He, he wanted it to stay the way it was. Don't touch it, Daddy. You know, he was very proud of it the way it was. And so we kept it that way overnight, and the next morning it was all hard and brittle. And in that state, it was very difficult for us to uh, shape it and mold it. It wasn't pliable anymore. 
It wasn't able for, to, to be molded and shaped in a new way and, and make the little balls that he wanted to make or the little snake that he wanted to do. And he started getting frustrated that it was just kind of falling apart. And so we had to retire that toy right away because we didn't want the meltdowns. But um, in that scenario, as I looked at that rigid and brittle Play-Doh that couldn't be molded into new shapes and forms, it made me think about how our lives are a little bit like that. Our lives are a little bit like that when we, in, in, to, some, to some degree, our Christian walk with God, our experience of the Lord. If we want Jesus to restore our lives, to change our hearts, to, to take the brokenness that's uh, within our lives and within our families, within our circumstances, the, 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 the things that are marred within us, the, the stigmas, the, the battles, the, the um, the things that we're not proud of, the regrets, the, the shame, the guilt, and all those different things. If we want God to take that and reform and reshape those things within us, then it's very critical for us to stay soft within his hands. It's very important for us to stay soft and pliable within the hands of the master. And I know that this happens mainly through us listening to and obeying his word. You know, we, we make Christianity out to be this long list of things, but you know what, can it, can it just be simple? Isn't the gospel simple that we just stay close to the one that saves our soul? That we just need his simple God, it's Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's him and him alone, that we need to stay close to him. And so if we are going to stay pliable within his hands, we need to understand what his hands are about and what he does. We need to understand what his presence is all about. We need to stay close to him and we need to stay within reach of him. We need to stay within the, the, the realm where he can speak into our lives and change our lives. We need to be within a place where feedback is possible, where, you know what, he has the right and the authority, where humility brings us to a place where we can say, Lord, yes, say what you want to say and I'll take it, Lord God. I might not like it. I might not enjoy it. I might not be all for it right now, but God, I give you the right of way. I want to stay pliable and soft within your hands. There's a text in Hebrews. The team can come on up. We're, we're going to worship God and, and respond in just a little bit in communion. But um, there's a scriptures in Hebrews that says in chapter three, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, if you hear the Lord's voice, don't harden your heart. The imagery, the, the, the picture that God is giving us in that text is that of callous skin. Now, I don't, I don't do manual labor. I do sometimes, but not to the degree of some of you who that's your bread and butter. You, you're construction workers. You're, you do certain tasks with your hands very repetitively, and that causes friction, and it causes strain, and so what it does is it hardens the skin. The imagery here in Hebrews chapter 3 is that of calloused skin. Skin that's become hard over time because of the friction and the repetitive use in motion. It's an imagery of dead skin. And the Bible teaches us that if we don't listen to God, if we don't obey God, if we don't take his word at its value and we incorporate it into our lives, if we do not do that, then we start to lose out our malleability. We start to lose out our softness. We start to lose out and become harder 
day by day. And that is exactly what the enemy wants to do with our lives. He wants to distract us from the word of God, take us farther away from his word, from his people, from his church. He wants to take us out of the sphere of influence of God in the realm where we will hear his word and receive his word, where we'll gather together with brothers and sisters and be encouraged by their testimony and God's faithfulness. He wants to remove us from such places, distract us from such things that we could slowly over time get harder and harder and harder. And in so doing, there could come a point in time where we're so far from his presence, so away from from him, that we miss out his presence, that we miss out his Holy Spirit, that we miss out his plans and purposes for our lives. It reminds me of Samson, who wasn't even aware when God's presence was so gone because his heart had become so hardened in the sin that he was living. So unattuned to God and his works and his ways. Watch for the enemy schemes. Be aware of his distracting voice and his accusatory tone. Step away from the condemnation in which he brings to you and step into God's convicting light. As he speaks his word, stay soft within his hands. My question is, will you choose to be pliable in the hands of the master? We'll conclude with the story, and and, and, uh, I invite you to just stand with me. There was a little girl in England. Her name was Josie Caven. And she was born profoundly deaf. This girl, she could not hear. And she was often feeling isolated as a child because of her inability to hear. But that changed after she received a, a cochlear implant during the Christmas season. At the age of 12, this little girl heard clearly for the very first time. It must have been an incredible thing to witness. The first sound that she heard was the song of jingle bells playing on the radio. Isn't that cool? And the question became, as they were interviewing her mother, was Josie's hearing restored? And the answer came, yes, completely. Was she hearing well immediately, though? was the second question, and the mother said, no, not exactly. See, her mother said she's having to learn what each new sound is and what it means. She'll ask questions like, was that the door closing? And and as she realizes for the very first time that inside of her room, when she flips the switch and turns on the light, that her light hums a little bit as it's turned on. She even started learning that her name uh, sounded special and what it sounded like because she never could have understood that there was a, a soft S sound in the middle of her name. And as she is listening to all these sounds and engaging after this incredible miracle and change and transformation in her life, her face is lighting up every time she hears something new. And everything around her just made her mom say, this is the very best Christmas I ever could have asked for. And so, looking at this little girl's story, Josie's hearing was restored, but her restoration introduced her to a daily adventure. It introduced her into this new rhythm and introduced her into this new opportunity where she could learn to distinguish each new sound as it came, as she started hearing the world for the very first time. It's that concept of already and not yet that we find in the scriptures. 
See, God has already restored us through the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on that cross. He already set us free from the marring of sin and the brokenness and the spoils of this world. And he has set us and redeemed us and reshaped us for a new future. But yet, we live in this tension of not being fully redeemed and not stepping into our full redemption until the day that we meet Jesus in the clouds. The day that we encounter him in the afterlife, where he will set everything right and fully give us that which our redemption was secured. Amen? Question is, are we okay with feeling broken? Are we okay with being, at times, accused, like the enemy says, Will we just settle for that which he has given us and shown us? Are we okay with that measure of restoration? Are we leaning in and pressing forward to God who is able to give us that new daily experience? Each new day, show us new insights. Peel back the curtains a little bit more, showing us his incredible love and glory and what he intends to do and restore within your life, your family, your marriage, your children, your walk with him. See, there's more to God then we give him credit. There is more to God than we sometimes hold on to. There is more that he wants to establish. And so today, my appeal, my question, my desire for you is it will you come running to the hands of the master to be the clay within his hands that he can do what he desires to do within your life. The beauty is he's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. And it's to be restored, redeemed. Our God is a God that is forever restoring. If he restored Peter, if he restored Jonah, if he restored the woman caught in the act of adultery, there is no sin that you're going through. There is no failure that you've experienced. There is no tension that you might be living with and just us acclimating in your life. That he doesn't want to say, give that thing to me. And let me show you who I am call you to be what I've intended for you for those of us who don't know Jesus Christ and never had an experience with him we've never said Lord like this woman then today's your day you need to step out in faith and say Lord I want to experience you as the restorer of my soul I want to have relationship with you that I can one day see the full redemption that you have for me. That you can change me and remove me from my sin, my, my addiction, my brokenness, my hurt, and my pain, my intended future that is going to hell without you. I want to experience the restoration, what it means to be reconciled with you.